In our studies of the 12th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, as you most, most of you will recall, we come this evening to verses 17 and 18. Verses 17 and 18 in the 12th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. Recompense to no men evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Now, I suggested when we were making a general analysis of the chapter, and as we resumed three weeks ago, uh, I suggested that here in the 17th verse, we come to the final, the last subsection of this chapter. Here the apostle, as I have reminded you, is dealing with the practical application of the great doctrine that he's been laying down, especially in the first eight chapters, and indeed also in the subsequent uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11. But here he comes to this application. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, and so on, that you be not conformed to this world, but that you be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then he's proceeded to deal with this. We've got to exercise the gifts that are given to us by the Holy Spirit in the realm of the church. He deals with that until the end of verse 8. The church is the body of Christ. And as in the body, our several members have their differing functions, but all serve the same common end and object and purpose, so it is in the church. Well then, from verse 9 and 10 onwards, he deals with our general attitude towards other people and the way in which, indeed, we conduct ourselves in general. Then, from verse 14 onwards, he is dealing with our reaction to what other people do to us. He begins with the statement, Bless them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. Until that point, he has been most concerned with what we do to others. Now, he's concerned with our reaction to what others do to us. And we have seen how in verses 14, 15, and 16, he's been laying down the general principles which should govern us in this respect. Now, here at the 17th verse, he goes beyond it. He's concerned about what we actually do in practice. The principle is we must bless those that... Uh, do harm to us and persecute us. We must bless them and not curse them. We are to rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with those who weep. But above all, we are to have the same mind one toward another. This unity of mind and of outlook that is always to characterize the members of the church and God's people. And in order to do that, we are not to mind high things or high people, but we are to condescend to be allow ourselves to be carried along by men and things which are of low estate. And then we last Friday night dealt with that final exhortation, be not wise in your own conceits. And that is, as we saw, a most important injunction. And we ended on this note, that the way to avoid being wise in our own conceits is to seek the wisdom that comes from above and from God. I was showing you how the best exposition of this injunction is the third chapter of the epistle of James, particularly towards the end, where James goes into this in great thoroughness, 
And therefore, if we are not to be wise in our own conceits, well, the best thing for us to do is to ask God for that wisdom that he alone can give us. And we are assured that he will, that he giveth liberally and upbraideth not. Well, now, here I am trying to show you the connection between that and this final subsection. Here you see he says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Now, in other words, we are, as he goes on to show us, to try to live at peace with all men. So here is again the practical carrying out of what he's laid down for us. If we have that wisdom from above, we shall have a wisdom that is first pure and then peaceable. And you remember how James there works that out in describing this wisdom that is from above. Uh, he says that um, it is pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is, is sown in peace of them that make peace. Well, now then, he's continuing that along a very practical level. And this is the thing that now is to engage our attention. The man of true wisdom not the man who thinks he is wise, but the man who has true wisdom, is always a peacemaker. How does he do that? How does this peacemaker, this truly wise man, conduct himself? Well, here's the answer. Now, I would again urge the importance of carrying in our minds the background of verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, and also verses 9 and 10, because there are the principles. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another, in honor with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. There's the great principle. In other words, I'm reminding you again that it is only the Christian men who can carry out these injunctions. The natural men cannot do so. So we must always remember that these words are addressed to those who've got new life in them, who have the mind of Christ, who have life from above, in whom, as John puts it in his first epistle, there is this seed of eternal life. It is impossible to anybody else. Now, let's, let's see that. As we expound, we shall see that that is something which is inevitably true. Well, now then, here is the first statement. Recompense to no men evil for evil. Now, this is the negative part of the statement. Here is somebody who does evil to you. What are you to do about this? Here is somebody who does you some wrong, who really has done you something, as I say, which is truly evil. What are you to do about it? Well, he starts with the negative. Don't pay back, he says. Don't recompense evil for evil. Now, here you see at once, we see that we are told negatively not to do what we all instinctively want to do and feel that we must do. The natural instinct is to hit back. It is to retaliate. That's the whole story of the human race. From the moment that men fell, this kind of spirit came in, enmity, self-seeking, hitting back, defending self, it's the whole tragedy of the story of mankind in its fallen state and condition. So the apostle, knowing us as he knew himself, uh, saw the wisdom of starting with a negative. 
Now, this is a principle that you'll find constantly in the Scripture. And it's a very wonderful thing, this. The Scripture always starts with us where we are. It meets us on our own level, as it were, and gradually raises us up. It doesn't start with the positive, generally, but almost invariably with the negative. You're told, first of all, what you mustn't. Here's the instinctive response. Don't do this. Now, you may for a while not be able to get beyond that, but that's something. Don't despise that. The negative is not to be despised. Whatever you may feel, don't do anything. If you can't get beyond that for the time being, well, at any rate, do that. We mustn't ignore uh, this uh, negative. It's a very vital, it is a very essential bit of teaching. Cut right across that which is instinctive and natural. Now, here, of course, the Apostle is simply putting before us our Lord's own teaching on this very matter in the Sermon on the Mount about turning the other cheek. If a man smites you, well, you don't smite him, you turn the other cheek. It's the same teaching put in this particular way and manner. And I'll come back to that later because I want to deal with that teaching in a fuller manner. Now, it's the same also as that teaching which we saw there in the second chapter of Peter's first epistle. He again refers to our Lord and to his example. That's the way in which we are to live. So we don't hit back. When he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. This is of the very essence of Christian teaching, that you don't retaliate, you don't hit back, you don't avenge yourself. This is, as I say, something which is really at the very center of Christian teaching, and it has been the cause of much sarcasm oftentimes on the part of men of the world who have not only rejected the Christian message but have ridiculed it. A famous example of that was the man who was known as Tom Paine, Thomas Paine, who lived towards the end of the 18th century. He was a well-known and famous infidel. And uh, Tom Paine, in referring to our Lord's teaching about turning the other cheek and uh, carrying out the injunction that we have before us this evening, he said that this is the spirit of a spaniel. That's how he described it. The spirit of a spaniel. Now fight. Nothing strong. The kind of spirit that one associates with a spaniel rather than a mastiff or something like that. Or a terrier. You see, that is the kind of ridicule that he poured upon this. And others have said the same thing, of course, that the Christian teaching has uh, produced flabby, sentimental people, lacking in manliness, lacking in virility. Uh, we've had a great deal of that in this present century, the whole cult of self-expression. Believe in yourself. Exert yourself. Stand up for yourself. This whole idea has been put forward before us prominently, and uh, this kind of Christian teaching has often been despised in that way. But is this just weakness? Well, the answer is, of course, a thousand times no. And the apostle here himself proves that it isn't that by going on to the positive. And here is the positive. Negatively, recompense to no man evil for evil. Positively, provide things honest in the sight of all men. Now, here's the positive aspect of the statement. What does this mean? 
Well, unfortunately, our translation here in the authorized version is not too good. And people taking it as being the true translation have often misunderstood it completely. And some have interpreted this as being just an injunction to us to provide for those who are dependent upon us. Well, of course, that's a right and a good thing to do, and we are told elsewhere to do that. But we're really not told to do that here. It doesn't come into the context at all. And is more or less meaningless at this particular point. But the apostle here, as I'm suggesting, is giving the positive part of the injunction. Negatively, don't hit back. Well, then what are you to do? Well, here is the answer. Now, what is it? Well, you're to do the opposite. And what is this opposite? Here we have to come to the actual meaning of the words. Take this word translated here as provide. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. In a sense, and especially as this word was used in the beginning of the 17th century and the Elizabethan era, provide really does carry the right notion. But as the word has by now derived a different connotation, we must give an alternative translation. The actual word used by the apostle means this. Take thought in advance. Take thought in advance. Or, if you prefer it, take thought for. Take thought for. Or take thought in advance. Concerning things that are good in the sight of all men. Now, what does this mean? Well, you see, the whole key is in that word, take thought in advance. In other words, somebody does you an evil. And the danger is to act instinctively, to act automatically. Don't do that, he says. Stop, think. Think ahead. Think in advance. Before you do anything, think about it. Don't allow yourself to act in this instinctive manner. All your action as Christians must be based upon thought. Now, this is, of course, absolutely vital and fundamental. And this is our great claim for the Christian life that it is in the last analysis the only reasonable and the only life which is based upon reason. The Christian, unlike all others, does not act instinctively. He always knows what he's doing. He should always be able to give a reason for what he's doing. He always takes thought in advance. And I want to expand that and take it further and put it like this. That the trouble with us by nature, and the man who is not a Christian, is that we tend to regard each problem that arises in and of itself. Now that is something we must never do. Somebody does me evil. I just think of that and act in kind. I mustn't do that. I must take this particular thing and put it into a larger context. I must consider it now in the light of the whole position in which I find myself as a Christian. Before I do anything, I must, in advance, take thought. And I must work these things out for myself in the context of my total position as a Christian and my total outlook as a Christian. Very well, there's the meaning of the word provide. Then things honest. Well, all right, in a way, but it, it, it just means good things. Good things as distinct from bad things. In other words, he's suggesting at once that to retaliate is bad. So we must provide good things. Now, here again, the word is interesting and important. 
provide good things in the sight of all men. There are two words which are used to convey the idea of goodness. The first word is a word that describes inherent or intrinsic goodness. Something which is good in its very nature in and of itself. That's one word which is used and is translated as goodness or good. But here we haven't got that word, we've got another word. And the word we have here is a word that is always used to describe exterior goodness, external goodness, goodness which is to be seen, goodness which is expressing itself outwardly. Or if you like, it is the outward expression of an inner inherent goodness. Now the apostle deliberately chose that second word rather than the first. He's concerned here about a goodness which can be seen, a goodness which is visible and is evident. So he says now, instead of retaliating, instead of hitting back, take thought and provide, produce, let there be evidence of things which are obviously good in the sight of all men, before all men. Now this is the positive aspect of the injunction. This is how we are to know, how to conduct ourselves when somebody does evil to us. Here is Christian teaching, which we find, of course, in many parts of the scriptures. The authorized version translates 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from all appearance of evil. It's doubtful whether that is the best translation there, but there's truth in it. It may better be translated, abstain from all forms of evil. But there's something in this other idea also, all appearance of evil, anything which may even appear to be evil, abstain from it, have nothing to do with it. Or as he's told us here in this very chapter, abhor that which is evil. Abhor it, cleave to that which is good. But a very much better illustration and a parallel with what we've got here is to be found in the second epistle to the Corinthians in the 8th chapter and the 21st verse. Now the apostle is dealing with a particular problem here. He's dealing, you see, with uh, helping the saints up in Jerusalem that were suffering and they were making collections and sending up the money. And he's dealing with it. He says here that he is sending up certain representatives. The heart of Titus, for instance. Titus is being sent up. He says, and we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And not that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this grace which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. Avoiding this that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us, but rather providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Now, providing for honest things, they are exactly the same words as we've got here in our verse, in the 17th verse of the 12th chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. Provide things honest. And here it is, providing for honest things. Exactly the same words. But you see the point he is making. He says, we are to avoid this, that no man should blame us in this abundance which is administered by us. He said, it's very important that we should administer this fund uh, properly, honestly, and do it in such a way 
that it will be obvious not only in the sight of God but also in the sight of men that we've not been dishonest, we've not abused our position, we've done nothing wrong in any way. Let's administer this fund, he says, in a way that it'll be open and plain to everybody. You know, oftentimes we are reminded that it isn't enough that justice should be done, but it must be evident that justice is being done. That's the principle that is involved here. We are to make it evident and obvious to others that what we are doing is right and good. Very well then. Now there is the actual meaning of the words. What then is the teaching? What is our exposition of this injunction? Well, we can put it like this. When somebody does evil to you, don't think about yourself only. No man liveth unto himself. That's a great word of Christian teaching. We'll get it later in the 14th chapter. No man liveth unto himself. No man dieth unto himself. Here it is. Now, when this happens to you, don't think only about yourself. Think of the effect of what you do in reply to this upon others. Not only upon Christians, but upon all men. Now, here, you see, is this great principle. We are always to behave in such a manner, whatever may happen to us, that we are acting in a responsible manner. And we are always acting in a way which shows that we realize that what really matters is what other people will think of Christianity as they see us behaving and living before their eyes. The people outside are going to judge the gospel, judge the whole of the Christian message by what they see in us. They say it's very easy to talk. Talk is very cheap. But you people, you make great claims. What are you like in practice? They're always watching. Therefore, we are to provide things honest always in the sight of all men. In other words, you see, when somebody does evil to me, I don't not only not hit back, as it were, or render evil to him. I now take this and put it into the whole context of my life as a Christian. What is involved here is not my honor, it's the honor of the Christian faith. It's the honor of the whole Christian position. It is indeed the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the honor of God. So I'm not to be concerned only about myself. I'm to think this thing through. I mustn't act on my instincts or on my own feelings. I mustn't be concerned about my own reputation. But I must be very concerned about the reputation of the Christian faith, the Christian gospel, and of the family of heaven to which, by the grace of God, I now belong. I must never act as an individual, independent, isolated person. As a Christian, I am not such. I am a member of the body of Christ. No Christian can act on his own. Now, many people seem to think that they can do this. And, you know, there's the type of person who rather bursts of this. Who says, you know, I'm the sort of person who always speaks my mind. Well, you've no right to speak like that. You can't isolate yourself like that. Others are going to suffer if you do that sort of thing. And you'll bring the whole of the Christian gospel into disrepute. We must always be thinking this thing through. And remembering who we are. And whatever my response to the evil that is done to me may be. I must always remember that not only am I involved. But the whole of the Christian faith is involved with me. Now, let me give you some parable, uh, parallel examples of this same teaching. You remember how our Lord puts it. In the Sermon on the Mount. Take, for instance, Matthew 5, 
16. Here it is. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. They're watching you. They're observing you. And they know to whom you belong. You're to live in such a way, he says, that when they see what you are doing, they'll be amazed and astonished. And they'll have to admit, they'll have to confess, I can't understand this. There's only one explanation. These are God's people. They're the children of God. They couldn't do it if they were not. But then, you remember our Lord later on in that same chapter, puts it in greater detail. Here it is, Matthew 5:38 and following. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow thee, turn thee not away. You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy, the man who does evil to you. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? Well, that you may be children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love them which love you, what reward of you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore. And put full weight into that therefore. Here's the appeal. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. In other words, when somebody does you evil, let the world, let all men know that you're different from the men of the world. Let them see that there's something about you that differentiates you from all who are not Christians. Let it be evident. Let it be obvious. Let it be seen that you're different. Let it also be seen that you are indeed children of your Father, which is in heaven. Or if you prefer it, take it as Peter puts it in that second chapter of his first epistle. Follow in his steps. Do what he did. That's how he behaved when he was here. And you belong to him. And his mind and his spirit are in you. Follow them in his steps. In whose mouth was no guile. When he suffered, he threatened not. But committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. My dear friends, there is no better way, there is no more direct way of showing that we are the children of God than in this particular matter. This is what the world cannot do. And it's by in responding to this injunction and not recompensing to any man evil for the evil that he does, it's in that way you show that you're born again. You've got a different spirit in you. You've got a new life in you. You are indeed a partaker of the divine nature. You are no longer a natural man. There is no better way, I say, of showing this to the world than by obeying this injunction. I don't know. People have sometimes speculated. I tend to agree with them. Is it possible that the apostle himself was first of all convicted 
by looking at and observing the death of the martyr Stephen. He consented to the death. He was in agreement with the verdict and the condemnation that was passed on Stephen. But he saw him dying with his face shining. Was that the first thing that disturbed him? Is that a part of the meaning of it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks? Was it that, I wonder, that first shook him out of his self-righteousness as a Pharisee, seeing the way that this man dies gladly, readily, and can offer that wonderful prayer to his heavenly Father not to lay this thing to their charge? Doing what his Lord had done before him on the cross on Calvary's hill. Was it this, I wonder, that first shook the apostle? Well, whether it was or not, this has often happened in the long history of the Christian church. There are many illustrations of this, how men were first convinced and convicted of sinfulness and first had a glimpse of this new life by seeing the death of some confessor, some martyr, who was being, in an evil manner, put to death simply because of his Christian faith. Very well, there it is. That's the great injunction of this 17th verse. Recompense to no man evil for evil, but rather contrarywise. Take thought about these things and live in such a good way. Show such excellencies in all your conduct and in your behavior before all men that they shall see that you are essentially different. Very well, let's go on to the 18th verse. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. It's still the theme of peace, you see. It all starts there, as I'm suggesting. Be not wise in your own conceits. Have this other wisdom, which is always peaceable, which always maintains this unity and concord and amity amongst God's people. Live peaceably with all men. That is the fundamental injunction. You are to be a peace seeker, a peace maker. And uh, we are to do this, again, with all men. But you notice there are two qualifications which are introduced. And they're interesting and important. The Christian faith, the Christian teaching, never asks us to do the impossible. Never. So, when you get a general injunction like this, you will often find it accompanied by certain qualifications. Here's the first. If it be possible. If it be possible. Now, what does this mean? Well, some have misunderstood this and have said that it means if you can, if it's possible for you, live peaceably with all men. That isn't what the Apostle says at all. That really is to miss the whole point. That's a subjective view of this. But the thing is really quite objective. If it be possible, if it is possible, what he means is this. Live at peace with all men unless they make it quite impossible for you to do so. The possibility is not in you, it is in them. There are people who behave in such a way that peace is impossible. Whatever you may feel, whatever you may desire, whatever you may do, they are determined that there shall be no peace. They will quarrel. Well, then you are not responsible. If it be possible, there are conditions in which it is impossible. There are people who make this impossible and are determined on some kind of strife and quarreling and warfare. That's the first qualification. Then the second, and here's the important one, as much as lieth in you. And the emphasis is this. 
as much as lieth in you, if it be possible, live at peace with all men. Which means this, don't you ever be the cause of the trouble. Let it never be because of you, because of what you are or because of what you do. Now here it is, it's quite plain then, isn't it? If it be possible, if they don't make it impossible, as far as you are concerned, as, as, long, as far as it rests in your control and power, live peaceably with all men. What does this mean? Is this peace at any price? Here's the question that arises. You see, these various injunctions, they speak to different members of a congregation like this. There are some people whose great trouble in life is the desire to hit back and to recompense evil for evil. And that's the great fight of their life, very often not to do that and to implement that other injunction. But you see, there is another kind of person who's almost the exact opposite. The peace at any price person. Not the militant, aggressive, warlike person, but the phlegmatic, the flabby kind of person who says anything for a quiet life. Peace at any price. And this injunction is addressed particularly to such people. Now this is the most important matter. It cannot mean that. It cannot mean that we are to put peace first and say at all costs and at any price we must maintain this condition of peace. It can't mean that for, for this reason. We go back again to that statement which is made by James at the end of the third chapter there in his description of this wisdom that is from above. And you notice that he goes out of his way to say this. This wisdom that is from above is uh, first pure then peaceable. He doesn't put peace first. He puts purity. He puts truth first. It is first pure. Then it is peaceable. And to reverse the order of these things is the very snare into which this particular type of person is so liable uh, to fall. Very well, there is the first answer which we give to the suggestion that this may be inculcating peace at any price. But now let's go on and examine this a bit further because I believe that at the present time particularly this is a most important matter. There is great confusion in the Christian church just at this moment on this very thing. The whole climate of opinion today is one which tends to say peace at any price. Let's all come together whatever we may believe or not believe. Let's all be one in a wrong sense. Peace at any price. So it's very important for us to examine this in a very practical way. Now... Haven't we got an illustration here? In what Paul tells us about the Apostle Peter in Galatians 2. You remember that uh, the Apostle deals there with this whole question, that teaching of the Judaizers, that uh, unless a man was circumcised, he wasn't a, a true Christian. And he goes on to deal with this in that second chapter of the Epistle to the Galatians, now particularly verses 11 to 14. He says, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, that's to say, Peter ate with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he, with Peter, withdrew and separated himself, fearing them that were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas was also was carried away with their dissimulation. 
But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, etc. He withstood him to the face. Now Peter, you see, was carried away here in the spirit of fear, trying to preserve the peace. He was compromising in the truth and in the doctrine. And the apostle deals with it in a very strong and in a very firm manner. He took the risk of having a quarrel with the apostle because this to him was such an important thing. And he tells us that he'd done the same thing over Titus. He says earlier in that chapter, but neither Titus, who was with me being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. The apostle wouldn't submit on that. And here, of course, is teaching, which we find running right through the New Testament scriptures, that we are not to compromise on matters of truth, but we are to do what the apostle did there as he describes to us. And there are many similar injunctions. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. If a man remains a heretic after the first and second admonition, says Paul uh, to, uh, to Titus, you ought to have nothing further to do with him. Titus 3.10, a man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition, reject. And you remember how John in his second epistle in the 10th verse tells us that we are not to give or to wish God's speed to a man, if there come unto you any man, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him God's speed. You'd have nothing to do with it. And I could give you many other examples of the same thing. But it isn't quite as simple as it appears to be. People often like to bring up at this point the action of this same Apostle Paul when he was up in Jerusalem on one occasion, as it is described in the 21st chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Listen to this, verses 20 to 26. Paul has arrived in, in uh, Jerusalem and he's reported what's been happening amongst the Gentiles as the result of his preaching. And we are told that when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee, that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this that we say unto thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Take them and purify thyself with them, and be our charges with them, that they may shave their heads. And all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, and from blood, and from strangled, and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be made for every one of them. Now then, has Paul gone back on his own principle? How do we reconcile that with what he says in Galatians 2 and in so many other places? Well now it seems to me that this is a very important metaphor as I say and I would suggest to you that the following principles should govern our action in this respect. First, we must always contend for the truth and for the faith. We are exalted to do so, to earnestly contend for the faith, to stand in rank, as he puts it to the Philippians and the Colossians, 
in defense of the faith. We are set for the defense and the proper propagation of the gospel. We must always speak the truth. And we must never shrink from doing so. The truth is to be declared, whatever the cost. Now, we all know what it is to feel like Jeremiah. Poor Jeremiah. You remember, he came to the decision. He said, I'll never say another word. Every time I speak, I only get into trouble. All these other prophets are again. I'm not going to say a word. But remember, he couldn't do it. The fire was burning in his bones. But we understand it. Oh, for peace. I'm not going to say certain things. I know if I do, they'll offend certain members of my church. Or they'll offend somebody else. And I, I, I'll be in trouble. I may suffer. My wife and children may suffer. And so on. So I'll say nothing. I'll preach an inoffensive message. You hold back portions of the truth because you know they're going to hurt and cause to offend people. Now this is always wrong. It is always condemned. We are to preach the truth. It's committed to us. We don't decide. It's given to us. The truth once and forever delivered uh, to the saints. We must never compromise this truth. We have no right to it. It isn't ours. We are to declare it. Whatever the consequences. We are not to modify it. We are not to leave portions of it out. We are not to add to it. We are to deliver the truth as it has been delivered to us. On all vital matters of doctrine, we are to be uncompromising and to declare the truth. Paul did that with Peter. Secondly, we must at the same time be prepared to be patient and as helpful as we can in all other matters. We are not to be bigoted. We are never to be unyielding. There are matters in connection with this faith that are not central and all-important and absolutely vital. I would explain Acts 21 in those terms. Paul on the central matter of circumcision would not yield and never did. And even that record tells us that the authorities in Jerusalem even held to that. But you see, this was the position. There were a number of Jews who had seen the truth of the gospel and had come to believe it. But they hadn't seen everything in a moment. It takes a long time to work these things out. There are examples of that everywhere in the scripture. Peter himself, you remember, had to be given a vision before he'd go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Not only was he converted, he'd had the experience of Pentecost. But you see, he hadn't worked it out. He couldn't see it. The old prejudices were there. Well, no, it was the same with these people in Jerusalem. So the apostle sees that it's a matter of wisdom in a matter that is indifferent and unimportant and for the sake of avoiding offense and making it easier for these people to work out their faith and to avoid a scandal to do this thing which he knows is not essential but he's not betraying any vital principle as he does so. And I think that this is something that we must also bear in mind. There are certain absolutes which we simply declare, come what may, whatever the consequences. But there are other matters, which are not vital to salvation, which are not central in importance. There we must be prepared not to compromise the truth, but to be accommodating in our behavior. In other words, we must remember the weaker brother. Conscience not thine own, but of the other also. It isn't merely what you know is right. See where that other man is. Try and help him. Be patient with him. Be long-suffering. If you can make a, con a slight concession in practice that isn't going to compromise the truth, for his sake, do so. Now, that's a principle which seems to me to be quite clear in the New Testament, and which we must always remember. But thirdly, and this is the important one in many ways, 
I say we are to assert and declare the truth, but my dear friends, the way in which we do so is all important. Speaking the truth in love. That's the thing. And you must never leave out any one part of that statement. Speaking the truth in love. Now, we can't help it if the truth offends people. But we must always be very careful that it is the truth that is offending people and not us. I, as a preacher, must be careful that if there is offense, well, that people are offended not at me, not at my person, not at my behavior, not even at the way in which I speak and preach. But they are truly being offended by the truth itself. If it's the truth that's offending them, I'm innocent, I can't help it. I'm anxious to be at peace. I've done my best to be persuasive, to put the truth before them in as attractive a manner as I can. If they still resent it and reject it and act violently because of it, it is not my responsibility. I must declare the truth always, but I must always declare the truth in love. Fourthly, I must never make a personal issue of these things. I must never contend for myself, nor even for my point of view, still less for my own reputation. I must contend for the truth. Nothing has been more regrettable and deplorable in the long history of the church as the way in which men have made of these things a personal matter, a personal issue. As if people who disagree with them are against them individually. It's true on both sides. The moment personalities come in and people are governed by this, they've departed from the truth and the whole spirit of the New Testament teaching. It's not a personal matter at all. And we must be very careful to keep this personal element right out of it. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live at peace with all men. And finally, and this is the great text that I leave with you, to go home with and to work out for yourselves. This is the final answer to this great matter. Let the peace of God or the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. That's Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ act as umpire in your hearts, or if you like, act as arbitrator. So that when a man does you evil, don't you take this decision into your own hands. Let the peace of Christ act as umpire. Paul's using the illustration of the umpire in the games, or the arbitrator in a, in a dispute. You don't decide. He decides. Let the peace of Christ act as the arbitrator. Doesn't matter what happens to you. Doesn't matter what you may suffer, what people may think or say. You should have only one concern. Not only that you enjoy the peace of Christ yourself, but that the peace of Christ may be in the church. Don't do anything in a personal manner that in any way is ever going to disturb that blessed peace. And it's a wonderful injunction, this. It's a wonderful principle by which to live. Make certain that you've always got the peace of Christ in your heart. Let nothing disturb it. Doesn't matter what anybody does to you. Doesn't matter what may happen to you around and about you. Make certain that you've always got the peace of Christ in your heart. And you say, I'll never do anything to disturb that. You can state the truth. You can state it boldly. You can withstand the Peter to the face. But always do it in such a way that you've still got the peace of Christ in your heart. 
You're not trying to get the better of Peter. You're not trying to put him down and put yourself up. You're concerned about the whole state of the church, the peace of God's people. You want them all to enjoy the benefits of salvation to the full. Let the peace of Christ always act as the umpire in all these matters. And as long as you do that, you will never go astray. May God have mercy upon us all and enable us by his Spirit to implement these great and glorious injunctions. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we come unto thee again, and we are all unprofitable servants. We have all failed. We have all come short. But we thank thee that with thee there is mercy that thou mayest be feared. O God, shed thy love abroad in our hearts, so that we shall be able to say, from the depth of our hearts, let nothing please nor pain me apart, O Lord, from thee. Hear us in this our prayer. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this our short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage. And until... We shall see him face to face, the Prince of Peace. Amen.